If you are listening to this after September 28th, 2013, you missed us at EmilyCon. To that uh, Emily Carr Institute down on Granville Island in Vancouver, BC. I love Vancouver, BC. Oh, we had so much fun at that convention. If you're listening to this after September 28th, uh, <laughs> when we uh, had our live show between 2 and 3.30. Yes, we will have had a great time. With uh, Chris Woods, artist extraordinaire. And special guest star. Who showed up. With all those uh, Emily Carr Institute art nerds going bonkers for him, like the Beatles in 1963. Yeah, because it's free. Wait, and wait. fun. Yeah. Free? Yep. A free caustic soda show. Free caustic soda show. Why would anybody not go? If they felt bad, they could bring some pocket change and put it in our donation can. <gasps> that would be cool. Oh, we should make a caustic soda bottle that has, that is, has a mouth wide enough for you to put coins in. <laughs> there you go. And then for a live show that's not free, what? You, you can come see us at VCon. What a ripoff. <laughs> oh, I mean, no, that would be worth it, too. October the 5th. At the Delta Vancouver Airport Hotel in Richmond, B.C. Mm-hmm. Of course, VCon is a full three-day convention with lots of crazy, nerdy stuff going on. October 4th through 6th, but we're recording our live show on the 5th. Now, you say this costs money, but the podcast itself doesn't. It's just that's getting true. into VCon, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So go to VCon and pay for it because it's awesome, and then come see us because we're free. And our guests will be John Kovalik and Mer Lafferty. John Kovalik from Dork Tower? Yeah, and Mer Lafferty from Podcasts of Old. I should be writing. Yes. Uh, the theme for the con is actually pirates, so it should be podcasts of yore. Mm-hmm. Podcasts of yar. <laughs> Friends, this is Bob Hope. If an atom bomb were to hit your home city, would you know what to do? Remember, one explosion of an atom bomb could kill 75,000 and maim 100,000. This is only one kind of a disaster which could strike. In addition to many forms of enemy action, there are the dangers of fire, flood, earthquake, and traffic. Knowing what to do before, during, and after a disaster can improve your chances of survival. There is something you can do and do now. You can learn a pattern of survival. Your local office of civil defense is ready to help. Persuade your club, your church, your friends, and your neighbors to help to learn to live. Remember, this is the atomic age. No one can escape its hazards, but everyone can prepare. Listen carefully. What you are about to hear can save your life. Do you know the siren signal in case of atomic attack? Do you know how to find shelter? Do you know how to give first aid? Do you know what will be done for your safety? For further details, consult your local office of civil defense. Incoming nuclear attack to duck and cover. I'm Kevin Leeson. Davy, Davy Rocket, king of the tactical nuclear recoilless gun. I'm Torin Atkinson. It's a hoppy IPA with a smooth, radioactive finish. I'm Joe Fulgham. This episode is going to be a real overpressure double shockwave blast. I'm Dr. Rob Tarswell, and this is Caustic Soda. Nukes! That's it. That's how it works. <laughs> the fear of nuclear weapons is nucleomichuphobia. Ooh, what's oh. the Michu part? I don't know. Dr. Rob, do you know what the Michu is? Couldn't tell you. M-T-U? But I'm not sure that's an entirely irrational fear. <laughs> no. 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 Especially, yeah, looking at this and seeing some of the, yeah. I lost, I lost some sleep in the 80s. 
Really? A little Thinking bit. Thinking about nukes? As a, as a young man. I did not. I didn't, I didn't think that the, the nuclear threat was a real one. I really didn't feel it. Huh. Wow, man. I grew up in, in BC, though, uh, on the island, and yeah. we, did, we did earthquake drills constantly. Oh. Because we thought the big one was going to hit any day, and it still hasn't happened. Oh. So it's like 30 years later. Well, Joe and I were Knock on, on wood. <laughs> <laughs> Joe and I as kids were, we didn't know this but um, at the time, but we're both in Germany on high alert NATO bases, which oh. uh, were very much tied up in the Cold War. And I was absolutely convinced I was going to die in a nuclear blast. You guys oh, were in Germany yeah. together? At the same time, but not together. Yeah, back oh. in our previous childhood lives, yeah. In and this. we both grew up in, uh, on CFP Chilliwack, or near CFP Chilliwack, yeah, which we right. kept hearing in high school was one of the high-priority targets for the Russians should they nuke North America, because we were, I think, the... We were the ammo dump for Western Canada or something like that. Yeah, but that's like that. something that everyone hears in high school, right? I know. I'm sure they do. I have no... Look, yeah. citation... But the fact is we heard it, right? Citation yeah. needed. <laughs> and we it heard it. fear-inspiring. And, it, and the, CFB the explanation... CFB stands for Canadian Forces Base. CFB stands for Canadian Forces Base. Chilliwack, uh, it's now closed. I think it's just a mm-hmm. training... Is it RCMP training base now? Anyway, it doesn't matter. If even that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The explanations were true. It, it's a, it was a major Canadian Forces Base. It was the ammo dump. And it probably, if you were going to follow up your nuke attack with sending over regular forces, you're going to want to blow up all the ammo and stuff. So. I had a big ammo dump this morning, actually. <laughs> it's like 20 minutes long. And if, if CFB Chilliwack had been hit by a nuke, I probably would have gone into my earthquake preparedness mode and hit under my desk. Duck right. and well, cover. It's also, it's also nuclear preparedness mode, mm-hmm. fortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're getting attacked uh, by nukes and there's an earthquake at the same time, just keep doing what you're doing. Oh, yeah. It's uh, one in the same. Duck under two desks. <laughs> if you can. Pile, pile two desks A on lead top. one with some wax on it. And uh, what else do we need? I don't know. One shaped like a uh, refrigerator, if we believe Indiana Jones. Oh, we don't. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that later. Uh, let's get to what we're actually talking about. A nuclear weapon is an explosive device that derives its destructive force from nuclear reactions, either fission or a combination of fission and fusion, because you need the fission to set off the fusion, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, both reactions release vast quantities of energy from relatively small amounts of matter. The first fission or atomic bomb test released the same amount of energy as approximately 20,000 tons of TNT. Uh, The first thermonuclear or hydrogen bomb test released the same amount of energy as approximately 10 million tons of TNT. Ooh, that's a jump. So fission is when the atoms go together. No, fission is when you're out in a boat for a really long time and bored to tears. No, fusion is when you put the atoms together, and fission is when they come apart. Correct. How how does that work? How can we do the same thing? To how can we get the same effect from both of those processes? effect being a real, tremendous release of energy? Well, it depends on the difference between strong and weak nuclear forces. So with uh, fusion, you are overcoming the, the what we call the Coulomb barrier and jamming two nuclei together, presumably t- typically protons or protons and neutrons. Is it like taking two ends of two magnets together and they just don't want to go together and then you just, you fucking, I'm doing it, and then they touch? <laughs> That's... A pretty good analogy, yeah. Ooh, you you, you force it to happen. You you make it happen. And what's really interesting is if you had a little tiny mass balance and you could weigh a carbon atom, it would weigh less than the number of protons and neutrons all just lying loosely in the pan. You know, if you could somehow make this happen. Oh, I see. Right? right. So when this stuff is all together... The combined weight is lower, and that is what's liberated as energy, and that's what gives the nucleus its stability. Oh, crazy. So then what about uh, fission? I mean, fission. 
<laughs> uh, fishing or fishing? Both. What about both those? The Kevin version uh, and the Dr. Rob well, version. Well, I'll have to defer to Kevin for the Kevin version. Oh, God. Boring. <laughs> but um, fission reactions are essentially when a nucleus is very large, what ends up happening is near the edges of the nucleus, you have a competition between Coulombic repulsive forces and strong nuclear forces. And eventually, the Coulombic forces will win, and that will start to cause the liberation of little bits off of the large nucleus. Okay. And uh, who's, what's a Coulomb? Well, that, that's the, sort of the electrical report, uh, repulsion. So a proton and a proton are both positively charged, right. so they will naturally repel each other. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in and that's a lar- Coulombian action? Um, I think that was kind of um, terrorism in the 80s, yeah. backed by Reagan. Okay. I, I like yeah. to, I, I've always wanted to go to Colombia. So a large nucleus, you can imagine the, the, the distance between the protons, there's not enough strong nuclear force yet, which okay. acts at extremely short ranges, but, and you also have the positive repelling the positive. You follow me? Let's this would say be a yes. lot easier if I was drawing it on a napkin. <laughs> Sorry, folks in Radioland. <laughs> One minute science school. Mm-hmm. How does what what do we do to make it overcome this natural repulsion? Like, what is it? What quality do does science bring to the table to make that happen? And how do we make fusion happen? Yeah, that was. I, how do we drive them together? Yeah, how do we overcome those? The re- you use a fission bomb forces? to drive yeah the atoms together to make a fusion. So bomb. that's like that's like two metal springs uh, that l- push them together. Super duper springs, which are themselves atomic bombs. Oh shit. Oh, this is a bomb inside a bomb? <laughs> yeah. It takes a bomb to generate yes. enough. An A bomb is the force. trigger for an H bomb. Oh, wow. So the A bomb came first. Yeah, yes. That's right. Naturally. So then you put an. So this is basically. Because it went alphabetically. <laughs> That's. Uh, no. A is for atomic. Okay. H is for hydrogen. H is for hydrogen. All right. But this is, this is basically the nuclear explosive version of a turducken. Right. That's mm-hmm. yeah. not a bad way of thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. Wow, two apt analogies or in a row, you know, Torn. High five me. Or a tofurkey for the Ow. vegetarians in the house. Yeah. Huh? Uh, I have a brief history of nuclear weapons. I was really surprised by how kind of quick this whole thing came up. I somehow thought Einstein had figured it out fairly like, early on, well, and it took a long time for technology to catch up. They've but, been working on the atomic bomb since the Chinese invented firecrackers. <laughs> I, there's a way that you could say that that's true, I guess. Okay, so in 1933, uh, Leo... Zillard fled Germany to London where he proposed and in 1934 patented the idea of a nuclear chain reaction via neutrons. Wait, he proposed he, to a nuclear weapon in 1930 Germany? Like I They're know. very liberal they back lived, then. Yeah. They lived happily yeah. ever after. You know, oh, huh. Marriage is between a man and a woman or a man and, and an uncontrollable nuclear chain reaction. <laughs> the patent introduced the term critical mass to describe the minimum amount of material required to sustain the chain reaction and its potential to cause an explosion. He subsequently assigned the patent to the British Admiralty so that it could be covered by the Official Secrets Act. In a very real sense, Zillard was the father of the atomic bomb academically. In August 1939, concerned that Germany might have its own project to develop fission-based weapons, Albert Einstein signed a letter to U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt warning him of the threat. And in 1942, the USA, with input from England and Canada, began the Manhattan Project, which led to the first ever nuclear weapon detonation, Trinity, on July 16th, 1945. I always wondered why they called it the Manhattan Project. uh, Mm. Probably just a code name they came up with. Well, there were men. 
and, and they wore hats because it was the 40s. Right. And uh, they were doing the experiments in the deserts. So they all had tans. Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Apparently, the army component of the project was designated the Manhattan District, and Manhattan gradually superseded the official code name of Development of Substitute Materials for the entire project. Mm-hmm. That is a pretty unsexy name. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how they would <laughs> want to keep that away. The gadget was the code name given to the first bomb tested. It was so-called because it was not a deployable weapon and because revealing words like bomb were not used during the project for fear of espionage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Inspector Gadget? Like, he, what does he have to do with this? Well, nothing, because they blew him up. <laughs> go, go, gadget A-bomb! <laughs> it was an implosion-type plutonium device. We'll talk about the different ones later. Similar in design to the Fat Man bomb used three weeks later in the atomic bomb bombing of Nagasaki, Japan. For the test, the gadget was lifted to the top of a 100-foot bomb tower. It was feared by some that the Trinity test might, quote, ignite the Earth's atmosphere, mm-hmm. eliminating all life on the planet. <laughs> but, but you never know until you try. <laughs> well, I, I love the way that this is straight from Wikipedia, although calculations had determined this was unlikely. Uh-huh. Only a 3 eh. to 4% chance. <laughs> it probably won't happen. Blow the well, bomb. There was a point in time when they invented cars, and they thought if you went over thirty miles an hour, you wouldn't be yeah. able to breathe in air. So, <laughs> but at least know. that would only kill the driver of yeah. the car, <laughs> right. yeah, not the entire planet. And you could, you know, put a dog in it and so, send it down a hill yeah. at thirty-five miles these, an hour. These are non-world-threatening tests that okay. you could you could perform. Right. God bless America for exposing us to the <laughs> battlefield Earth planet cyclo risk. But hold on a second. Didn't when they fired up the CERN, they, the, the uh, CERN uh, that was, particle accelerator, well, they were like, oh, we could create a mini black hole in the center of the Earth? No, that's what all the kooks thought. Yeah, the oh, kooks okay. thought that. Everybody else was like, no, don't be silly. Any chance that that would happen would make that, that would happen just naturally somewhere near us in the cosmos. And it's not, so no. Okay. Uh, less wild estimates, however, thought that New Mexico would be incinerated. Calculations showed that the yield of the device would be between zero, if it didn't work, and 20 kilotons of TNT. In the aftermath of the test, it appeared to have a blast equivalent to 18 kilotons of TNT. So hold on a sec. So they actually thought there was a chance, an outside chance, that they could incinerate New Mexico. New Mexico. So New Mexico was the expendable crew member of the U.S.? That's right. (laughs) What state can we afford to lose? So is the entire planet. I mean, that's one way to end a war. Yeah, well, you get rid of Hitler and everybody else. I would have gone with Florida. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, now in retrospect, but at the time, Florida was quite nice. My guess is that they're like, look, somebody's going to do this test. So if it's going to blow up the planet, might as well be us. <laughs> the, the, this is a dick measuring contest. It's like, hey, if Wait. somebody's going to blow up the earth, it's going to be an American. You're going to let right? some fucking Nazis blow up the earth? <laughs> That's our job. <laughs> <laughs> fucking commies. Uh, sir, the commies are. Never mind. <laughs> It left a crater of radioactive glass in the desert 10 feet deep, which is not that deep, I thought, and 1,100 feet wide, or that's uh, 3 meters and 340 meters wide. The shockwave was felt over 100 miles away, and the mushroom cloud reached 7.5 miles or 12 kilometers in height. After the initial euphoria of witnessing the explosion had passed, test director Kenneth Bainbridge commented to Los Alamos director Oppenheimer, now we are all sons of bitches. (laughs) Yeah. With radioactive glass that yeah. we're using to make window paints. After the euphoria of watching it from like, you know, one mile away, uh, they were then scorched, right? You know, <laughs> there was a, they became man had super tans. Oppenheimer later stated while watching the test, he was reminded of a line from the Bhagavad Gita, a Hindu scripture, 
Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Mm. Which makes me think, no, you didn't. You were worried you would destroy the world. <laughs> and then you pressed the button and you didn't. Now I am become Oppenheimer, almost destroyer of worlds. Well, but I, I think he probably saw, like, if this is the prototype, we're going to get a hell of a lot bigger. He probably saw the inevitable, yeah. you know, uh, maybe not the arms race per se, yeah. but the uh, explosive power yeah, He's not race. talking about what he did. He's talking about what he's going to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boy, that, that was... was- that was relatively easy. <laughs> yeah, they, man, anybody could do that. Oh shit, anybody <laughs> could do that. And that was just the baby bomb. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, the Alamogordo Air Base issued a 50-word press release in response to what it described as quote several inquiries that had been received concerning <laughs> an explosion. The release explained that quote a remotely located ammunitions magazine containing a considerable amount of high explosives and pyrotechnics exploded but that, quote, there was no loss of life or limb to anyone, end quote. Not yet. Uh, yeah, that was an ammo dump. That so giant mushroom cloud. What kind of, from that uh, level of explosion, what kind of radiation would we have seen from that? Any? Hmm. Well, any particular nuclear device, about 5% of the explosive yield is ionizing radiation. I mean, there's all kinds of electromagnetic radiation that comes from uh, a nuclear device, and that is primarily what heats up the surrounding material and and leads to the uh, concussive wave and the wind and all the nastiness. But the amount of ionizing radiation is pretty small, about 5% in the direct blast and then 5% in the radioactive fallout. Mm. Yeah, I actually have, uh, we'll get to it a little later, but basically because of the way the math works on radiation and explosive power and things like that, it turns out that with uh, most bomb yields that... If you are close enough to it to receive a lethal dose of radiation, you are also close enough to have just been instantly killed by the blast. Ah, oh. so incinerated. Yeah, there it's are... It's the fallout that's the problem. There is some math where that would be different. Right. And of course, there's also the nuclear warheads that have been constructed so that they give out most of their output as neutron radiation. Those are neutron bombs. Exceptionally good at killing people via radiation poisoning without seriously damaging fortified infrastructure, a neutron bomb's explosion is still powerful enough to level any non-fortified civilian building within the range of its lethal radiation, which means houses are still, you know, this is, it's not a magic device that just goes wink and all the buildings stay perfectly standing right, and everybody right. dies. There's still a big explosion and houses are still totally destroyed. But it's, it's just, way more about the radiation than it is about the concussive right, force. Right, exactly. Yeah, your, your fortified buildings, your big, huge concrete ones and things like that are still going to survive and you're going to be able to come in. You blow out all the windows. Yeah. Right? But there was never a neutron bomb that was exploded in uh, in actual combat or anything like There's that. There's only been two nuclear weapons exploded in combat. Right. That's uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We're actually going to be saving most of the details about that for either a show on them specifically or for the nuclear war episode that we're going to do later on. Even We're going to talk about them a little. Obviously, mm-hmm. we can't do a nuclear weapons episode without talking about them, but there's so much... <laughs> Stuff that we could do just a whole show on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we're going to save it for a much bigger episode specifically Mm -hmm. about that. I kind of jumped ahead. Neutron bomb is a type of one of the other two types of bombs. We talked about the A-bomb and the the, uh, fusion bomb, the H-bomb. also a very catchy tune by the Pointer Sisters. Oh, that's the neutron dance. Yeah, but it's about the neutron bomb. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Look it up. It'll be on Wikipedia by the time this episode is up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just you wait. If it's not there now, it'll be there soon. Neutron Bomb is if that song didn't make it big, Mm. (laughs) which it shouldn't have. I don't know. I kind of like it. Exploded. Really? Exploded all over the charts. (laughs) I love the Pointer Sisters. Mm -hmm. And it took a lot of human casualties. (laughs) I... (laughs) 
And there's some radiation sickness as well. <laughs> well, just sickness. Well, speaking of radiation sickness, there are three categories of immediate effects from a nuclear blast. Okay. Nice segue, by the way. Thank you. There is, of course, the blast itself, the explosion. There's the thermal radiation or heat. And then, as, as Dr. Rob mentioned, the prompt ionizing or nuclear radiation. So when you say the blast, you mean the concussive shockwave. Exactly, yeah. At low yields, all three can be significant sources of injury. With an explosive yield of about 2.5 kilotons, the three effects are roughly equal. Uh, all are capable of inflicting fatal injuries at a range of one kilometer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's that math I was talking about. The area subjected to damage by thermal radiation increases almost linearly with yield. So as you increase your yield, if you if you go from 2.5 kilotons to 5 kilotons, that's going to basically double uh, the area subjected to the damage by the thermal radiation, the heat. Mm-hmm. Blast effect is a volume effect. So it that means that it scales with the inverse cube law. Oh. I know. Whoa. Oh. Inverse cube law. Yes. <laughs> and the intensity of nuclear radiation decreases with the inverse square law like we've discussed That's before. That's the one that I'm used to. The inverse but the square inverse, law. The inverse now, cube law has something to do with Mr. Rubik's, right? He was involved somehow. That's when you take all the stickers uh, off of the outside and put them on the inside. <laughs> now solve it. <laughs> Can't even see it. I need x-ray goggles. God damn you. It is noted that nuclear radiation is, is strongly absorbed by the air it travels through, so that causes the intensity to drop off actually much more rapidly. What's the smallest atomic bomb you could have? Depends what you count as a bomb, I suppose. No, normal normal like bomb inside, definitions? I mean, if if, if we, we want to talk be... about a single atom... Is that a bomb? lob a neutron into it, and you can get it to split apart with fission, and that's how atomic reactors work. So it can happen at an atomic level, then just scale it up to whatever you, wherever you draw the cutoff. How big a a pop would you get out of that, like, single neutron? Would it be enough to actually, like, you know, give you a blister on your finger or something? No. Okay. You wouldn't, like, look down at your finger and see, like, a little tiny, tiny mushroom cloud. So if we wanted to, with nanotechnology, we could make tiny little bombs, tiny little atomic bombs. That would be, you know, you could put in the, you could drop down someone's shorts (laughs) as a prank. (laughs) Is that what you would do with the tiniest atomic bomb? I might. (laughs) But you wouldn't get that super tiny little mushroom cloud we just heard. Yes, you would. (laughs) So, (laughs) you prankster. The M28 or M29 Davy Crockett weapon system was a tactical nuclear recoilless gun for firing the M388 nuclear projectile that was deployed by the United States during the Cold War. Very similar to the mini nuke weapon in Fallout Three, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, it it basically it looks like a recoilless rifle, just slightly too big to launch on your shoulder. Like and you can see this picture; it's it's on a tripod. There's a guy standing next to it. It looks to be about six to seven feet long uh-huh. uh, and quite heavy. It uses a uh, version of the W54 warhead, which is a very small sub kiloton fission device. Uh, which weighs about 51 pounds, 23 kilograms, mm-hmm. and it has a yield equivalent to about 10 or 20 tons of TNT. Okay, Whoa. so presumably... So it's, it's basically a recoilless rifle that can fire a little mini Hiroshima. So uh, presumably this is a weapon that's small enough that it doesn't kill the uh, guy who's firing the gun. It depends on how far away you fire it. If he's if a lousy you, shot, he, it might. <laughs> right, okay. If he's a team fortress... If, if he rolls a one on a 20-sided die. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and now when you look at that, you get a sense of the idea of where the suitcase bomb comes from right. you just reshape that thing so yeah. it's not for launching you just re- reconfigure it, reshape it that'll fit in the suitcase yeah think of mm. how much of that huge device is really just about getting it far enough away from you mm. and right. 51 pounds you can actually check that on a plane <laughs> well 
It's a pound over. You'd have to pay excess uh, baggage. Yeah. So we'll go back to the yields here. With yields in the range of hundreds of kilotons or greater, typical for strategic warheads, immediate radiation injury becomes insignificant. Dangerous radiation levels only exist so close to the explosion that surviving the blast is impossible. As you said, yes. A convenient rule of thumb for estimating the short-term fatalities for all causes due to a nuclear attack is to count- From all causes. Yeah, from mm-hmm. all causes is to count everyone inside the 5 PSI blast overpressure contour around the hypocenter as a fatality. Uh, What's the difference between a center and a hypocenter? <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I, my understanding of the hypocenter is just it's the, the very center. Right, okay. Yeah. Hypercenter. The, the extreme center. But unless they mean hypo, meaning under, because the blast could be at the ground level or higher. So the hypocenter might be the ground point under. Okay. Right. Mm, the air explosion. Uh, the hypo... We all know that the hypercenter is where they keep all those kids that can't pay attention. Don't believe the hypocenter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In reality, substantial numbers of people inside that contour will survive, and substantial oh. numbers outside the contour will die, just because, you know, some people are going to be protected from something, from like a, they might be in a large building or deep underground or something, but or, other people outside are going to get hit by flying debris and die. Or there'll be one of the places where the ceiling fan will come down and chop yeah, their heads yeah, off. Yeah, exactly. But the assumption is that these two groups will be roughly equal in size and balance out. The ceiling sure. fan. So, however, this completely ignores any possible fallout effects. Physics of nuclear weapon effects. Of course, thermal radiation and blast are inevitable consequences of the near instantaneously instantaneous release of an immense amount of energy in a very small volume. This creates a fireball first. The fireball uh-huh. is the hot ball of gas created when a nuclear explosion heats the bomb itself and the immediate surrounding environment to very high temperatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, as this incandescent ball of hot gas expands, it radiates part of its energy away as thermal radiation, including visible and ultraviolet light. Part of its energy also goes into creating a shock wave or blast wave into the surrounding environment. Kind of sounds like hanging out with Joe. Yeah. He's After a real fireball, that guy. After those Blast refried wave. beans. <laughs> the first energy to escape from the bomb are the gamma rays produced by the nuclear reactions. And hulks. Uh, <laughs> no, he doesn't produce them. Oh, right. Except he when he takes them. a dump. Yeah. They, escape, they escape into the outside world at the speed of light. The gamma rays strike and ionize the surrounding air molecules, causing chemical reactions that form a dense layer of smog tens of meters deep around the bomb. Ooh. This smog is composed primarily of ozone and nitric and nitrous oxides. So it smells bad. I Well, for what, like a nanosecond? A very, very I, short yeah. period of time. <laughs> a very, so the smog very. is there and then it goes away immediately? Well, it's overtaken by the blast. The, oh, there's right. a, at the same, this forms at the exact same time that there's radiation and explosion and all this other stuff going on. An expanding bubble of very high temperatures is thus formed called the isothermal sphere. It is a sphere where everything has been heated by x-rays to a nearly uniform temperature, initially in tens of millions of degrees. Mm. But they really like oxymorons, obviously. I mean, it's icy and it's thermal. Isothermal. Isothermal. No, not icy temperature everywhere. Because I thought that's where they got the idea for those icy hot patches or something. From atomic bombs. Mm Mm-hmm. Put this on your skin, kids. Yeah, well, they heard icy thermal, just like I just did, and they went, what a fucking fantastic idea. And they ran with it. No? You don't think that's how it happened? <laughs> You're wasted in filmmaking. <laughs> wasted. You're a marketing genius. Undiscovered. Until now. The isothermal sphere is incredibly brilliant. Its surface brightness is trillions of times more intense than the sun. What? Yep. Yeah. Don't look at a nuke. <laughs> Yeah. Now, wait, wait. What if you had one of those pinhole cameras? What if you had one of those? Could you do it then? Super tiny pinhole. 
Super uh, big screen. It would have to be one. The pinhole would have to be a millionth of the size of one that you could use to look safely at the sun. All right. right? Okay. If it's millions small. of times brighter. One millionth of something is pretty small. <laughs> it's pretty small. Essentially, we're getting down to the space between atoms. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, as the fireball, I can ex- do it. <laughs> I can do it. Torn, torn is a, a nuclear grade squinter <laughs> and hole puncher. Yeah, very a, precise. I have a very small pin. As the fireball expands, it cools. Uh, when it cools to about three hundred thousand degrees Celsius, uh, and the surface brightness has dropped to a mere ten million times brighter than the sun. A mere. A mere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rate of radiative growth is about equal to the speed of sound in the fireball plasma. Okay. Okay. You're not going to outrun it. Yeah. Mm. Hmm? What, what well, if I'm unless in? you're Jean-Claude Van Damme in an action movie right at the very end. <laughs> <laughs> then well, you can outrun anything. But he would be walking away slowly while it explodes behind him. Uh, he doesn't walk, Joe. He struts. That's true. Can you outstrut a nuclear bomb blast? Jean-Claude Van Damme can. Okay. He can do anything. <laughs> Except make Hard Target a good movie. It's a good movie! Shut up. I would just run to push Rick Jones out of the way. Into a trench. Thank you, Dr. Banner. <laughs> At this point, a shockwave forms at the surface of the fireball as the kinetic energy of the fast-moving ions start transferring energy to the surrounding air. This phenomenon, known as hydrodynamic separation, occurs for a 20-kiloton explosion about 100 microseconds after the explosion when the fireball is some 13 meters across. Hydrodynamic separation, that's what happens when I cannonball into a pool. That's (laughs) the water that ends up on the outside, which is just about all of it. Because I cannonball in epic fashion. Not a bad analogy. Uh Oh, really? Yeah. That's my third apt analogy? You, you would be the fireball <laughs> in that analogy. Yeah. Man, this is like dog's ass in sunshine or something <laughs> like that. You're wearing your red Speedos. <laughs> yeah. And drinking fireball, maybe. Totally. Okay, that needs to be... Can you find a pool that we can do a promo shot of you drinking fireball and doing a cannonball into... And we're going to get a high-speed shot of you doing it with a big, huge grin on your face, and that will be now, the photo for this podcast. I'm uh-huh. going to do my impression of a nuclear bomb. <laughs> Dr. Take- Rob said this was apt. <laughs> ah, take that, Hiroshima. <laughs> The shockwave initially moves at some 30 kilometers per second, a hundred times the speed of sound in normal air. This compresses and heats the air enormously up to 30,000 degrees Celsius, mm-hmm. some five times hotter than the sun's surface temperature. Ouch. At this temperature, the air becomes ionized and incandescent. The air literally lights up because it's so hot. The shock front is many times brighter than the sun, but since it is much dimmer than the isothermal sphere, it acts as an optical shutter, causing the fireball's thermal power to drop rapidly. Hmm? Using light against light. Basically, there's a darker light in front of the brighter light. But the darker so, light is brighter than the sun. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So it's still bright. So right. still don't look at it. Still don't Not look at it. Not even after what? 13 seconds? Uh, that's 13 meters. 13, 100 microseconds. 100 microseconds. <laughs> oh, okay. Ah, that's fast. Okay, tiny, so tiny, tiny. Yeah, tiny, tiny, tiny. One so ten thousandth of so a second. So how long do I have to blink? <laughs> you better have started that blink long before the bomb oh, explodes. So, okay. just yeah. like there's a there's just a you know a chance that you might have your eyes blinking at the time it yeah, goes off. It probably takes you thousands of times longer to close your eyes than it does for this to happen. And let's be honest, even if your eyes were closed, it would probably burn your <laughs> retina out through your <laughs> eyes. Depends how close right? you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, my eye skin isn't like shielded by lead or anything. Like. Uh, 
It you haven't probably. got the, I can get you some lead-based mascara if you like. <laughs> oh, nice. You haven't got the Vulcan inner eyelid? <laughs> the Vulcan anti-nuclear inner eyelid? No, no I don't possess one of those. <laughs> totally, totally does. Mm-hmm. There are two types of detonation for a nuclear weapon. There's an air burst and a surface burst. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're used for... I will take the air burst. Oh, uh, I think well, that's that the one's more devastating, isn't it? That means you will probably die quicker. So that's probably the wise yeah, choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So for airburst, when an explosion occurs, it sends out a shockwave like an expanding soap bubble, right? So you get this explosion going on. Yeah. Mm. Uh, if the explosion occurs above the ground, the bubble expands. And when it reaches the ground, so you can imagine there's an explosion, you know, yeah. uh, hundreds of feet above the ground. And I've then all this. of a sudden, that explosion, the bottom of it hits the ground. Yeah. When it reaches the ground, it reflects back up. Uh-huh. And of course, because it's not direct, like angle of incidence, angle of reflection, it's going to reflect at kind of an angle. Right? Mm-hmm. So it goes down and all those individual parts of it reflect out. And that shock front bounces off the ground to form a second shock wave traveling behind the first. So you get hit by when it gets hit, hits the ground, and then you get hit by all the stuff bouncing off the ground. But I did think, I thought you said right when we started this that it was full of soap bubbles, which, you know, I mean, getting hit by a second shock wave of soap bubbles... Double clean. It's right? a hotter than the sun exploding soap bubble. Ah, you're gonna so die just, clean. It, I was about to say it just scrubs everything clean as a whistle. Yeah, but then covers it with your a life fine away. nuclear ash. <laughs> the reflected shock wave tends to overtake the direct shock wave, and when it does, they combine to form a single reinforced wave. Oh, nice! This is called the Mach effect, and produces a M A C H. Yes, M A C H. As opposed to M O C K. Yeah, it's it's not. <laughs> Uh, take that. We nuked you. You get hit by two shockwaves, <laughs> no, loser. No, that's the mocking effect. That's right. <laughs> so if you want to actually destroy a large area and kill all the people, you want to do uh, an airburst. For a given explosion yield and a given blast pressure, there is a unique burst altitude at which the area subjected to that pressure is maximized. That's like oh, it's the perfect. So basically you can do the math to go, look, we have to. Do, I want to make sure we destroy these buildings. And that means I'm going to have to use this size bomb at this, uh, this, at this altitude, and that will get this area. Yeah. And so they actually do the math on, and if there's weaker buildings, they can fire it. They can higher. explode it higher so that they get a bigger area and stuff like that. This is called the optimum burst height for that yield and pressure. Isn't it great or, or, that we did OBH. all that nuclear testing? <laughs> this is how we know these things. Mm-hmm. Right. A hey, little bikini atoll never hurt anybody. Surface bursts <laughs> are useful if local fallout is desired mm-hmm. uh, or if the blast is intended to destroy a buried or very hard structure like a missile silo or dam. Right. That's what the ground burst is for? Yeah, and they actually also can do subsurface bursts. So it hits the ground, buries, buries a little bit, like yeah. kind of, uh, you know, mole style, mole man style. Oh, see, I'm imagining they, the giant bomber flies overhead. They drop a bomb. Mm-hmm. The bomb splits apart. Then there's a little a drill machine, <laughs> like a mole man machine. That yeah. goes in like that fucking terrible movie, which was called. Uh, the well, core? The core. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then it gets down to a certain depth, and then the bomb explodes. The atomic bomb explodes. Inside that's, of it. that's a lot of action. You could just, like, fire It'll it. It look cool, though. From, I'm... like, a super strong rocket and have it, like, punch through it. Like a... Yes? Is that how it works? I, yeah. I believe it works much like bunker buster bombs, which I don't mm-hmm. know what the actual mechanism for getting through that kind of thing is. But I do know that Earth-penetrating bombs have been developed that can punch over 100 feet into the Earth. Okay. One of the advantages to that is that's that actually almost does... to the bottom of my basement. Yeah, Uh, that will eliminate the thermal radiation and reduce the range of the blast effect substantially. So you could technically do that to nuke a very specific small area Mm -hmm. and only leave, you know, a smoking radioactive crater. And nobody Mm -hmm. will know. 
Martha, <laughs> did you hear that bump last night? <laughs> I no, no, David Samuel says, hey, Martha, well, did you hear that shaking and that explosion? I like Kevin's version better. Uh. <laughs> so, of course, there are other effects. There's the electromagnetic effects, as mentioned by Dr. Rob. There is an electromagnetic pulse given off by nuclear explosions. The EMP? Oh, the EMP. If Hollywood has the... taught me anything about EMPs, they're devastating to anything electronic. Right. Is that, in fact, true? Like, would all my cell, my, my cell phone die? Your, your by car? EMP? Modern VLSI, or very large-scale integration chips, which means microprocessors, uh, mm-hmm. computer chips, like what, basically everything we've made to put into computer-type devices since the 70s, mm-hmm. are extremely sensitive to voltage surges. And what happens is this EMP, right, is basically just a whole bunch of electromagnetic uh, force <clears throat> moving over an area. And if there's any kind of wiring in that, right? If you uh-huh. move a wire through an electro- electromagnetic field or move an electro- electromagnetic field through a wire, you will cause an electrical charge in that wire, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's how generators work. Well, this EMP is just a huge moving field of electromagnetic energy. Mm-hmm. Hits Any wire it hits, it's going to cause a massive so- surge of electricity, and it's just going to fry all the circuits in it. So any kind of car, no matter how old it is, no, no, the ones with computers. The ones well, the computers, computers are all completely going to be ruined. Uh, they're going to get a voltage surge. I mean, you can get a slight voltage surge. Even I have a 1988 Toyota Corolla. You're fine. EMP is you'll okay. You'll be fine, but you'll be stuck in traffic around in all <laughs> the dead cars. Its, it's fuses would probably all break. Right? Uh, it would still mm. the the, wi- the actual wires in the my actual car. wires in the car would would uh, have electrical spikes, and I'm guessing at certain ranges it would be enough to bl- at least blow the fuses in the car. Tough luck, Rocco. Shit. But, uh, Luckily, I have a skateboard in the back. <laughs> no. <laughs> Electric skateboards are no good either. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Darn it. My hoverboard is right out. <laughs> uh, and, of course, eye injury is a problem. This is my favorite part. Oh. Is it? Because here's the odd thing. Only about 4% of the population within the third-degree burn zone at Hiroshima reported keratitis, pain, and inflammation of the cornea. Keratitis? Yeah. That's when you've basically, got carrots stuck in your abdomen. No. Basically, Very eye sharp. Damage. No, keratitis is when a Care Bear pokes you in the eye. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Rob, help me. No. There's no <laughs> helping you. <laughs> What's keratitis? Inflammation of keratin. Oh, okay. Such as in the cornea. Uh-huh. Right. Does that make me blind, or does it just make my eyes uh, hurt? It hurts, and it lasts several hours to several days. But you can't deny that if a Care Bear were to poke you in the eye, it might give you keratitis. I can't deny uh-huh. that. See, but we have established that looking at a nuclear explosion will cause it permanent will, eye damage. But the thing is, almost nobody does. Well, because almost nobody's like looking right that in the flash, sky. It's like, it's like there's a lightning to... storm, and you're looking all over the sky looking to find the lightning, and then it happens behind your head. Well, cause... it just goes kaboom. And who's standing there like looking into the sky yeah, for that like one millionth of a second that, where the thing's going to actually blow? Hell, I would. <laughs> I would. I, if, if I know that thing's coming down. If. Right. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go up on the roof and take it all in. Yeah, but why would they know yeah. it was coming down? <laughs> I don't think they did. Yeah, That's the whole exactly. point. Very few people actually suffered uh, severe eye damage from Hiroshima mm-hmm. uh, because people just weren't looking up in the sky. Either that or it's a total sunglass culture. Oh, yeah. Sunglasses. Will, mm-hmm. Well, in 1945. Yeah. Yeah. But flash blindness can occur. Yes. This is the phenomenon of the brightness of the light actually basically temporarily no, no, I, using up all the pigment I in know, your retina. I know what flash blindness is. 
it's when Torn flashes somebody. And they're like, oh, my eyes! I'm blind. <laughs> so does flash blindness happen with your eyes are open or closed or both? Uh, well, I, I don't know specifically. Certainly open. Yeah? Yeah. And it lasts about 40 minutes. Oh, okay. Because it takes that long for the cells in your retina to regenerate really? photosensitive pigments. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And right after a nuclear bomb that you have been lucky enough to survive is a terrible time to be blind for 40 <laughs> minutes. Just uh, FYI. That's a critical 40 minutes. Well, basically, that's when you get all your shit in order. Like, even if you were outside of it so that, you know, you're, you're not going to be radiated, you got lucky so you didn't get to hit by some, you know, flying debris or something like that, you're one of the people right there who's ready to help other people who've actually been injured and you can't see right. for 40 mm-hmm. minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrible. So is that, like, almost universal? And you are freaked the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm blind. Although, if you're already blind... You're in a really good position. Although I would think you're probably deaf as well from the shockwave <laughs> blowing out your eardrums, depending on how close you were. The, so this is the you're you're trying to come up with the in, the single instance of in the land of the blind, the blind man is king. So Helen Keller would be like, well, "What's the big deal?" <laughs> yeah, it's true, but Although, nobody could hear her. Yeah, she'd be signing yeah. like a mad woman, and That's everyone'd right. be like, nobody'd be responding. Like she felt a bump. <laughs> ruffled her. The wind ruffled her hair a little bit. Helen, did you hear that bump? <laughs> Now, injury uh, based on the blast damage, this is kind of odd. As a general guide, city areas are completely destroyed with massive loss of life by overpressures of 5 PSI. Okay. Uh, with heavy damage extending out to at least uh, the 3 PSI contour. Here's what's odd. Humans are actually quite resistant to the direct effect of overpressure. Sure. Pressures of over 40 PSI are required before lethal effects are noted. So what that means is if you were kind of standing out in the open mm-hmm. and that like over <laughs> and that overpressure which you is going through and sometimes I stand in the open knocking down buildings and wrecking everything hit you you would actually be okay. You're just like I'm guessing it's because we're big bags of water. I don't know what the details <laughs> yeah. are. Yeah. You know, whereas whereas a building is a huge static rigid structure yeah if you had like a super high speed camera on a person getting hit by like you yeah. know 30 psi or whatever you'd probably get a lot of that rippling flesh looking <laughs> thing that when those fat guys get shot by cannons right right <laughs> yeah <laughs> i have a question yeah what's the difference between pressure and overpressure overpressure is when you get like squashed like a bug by it then it's overpressure overpressure is the pressure caused by a shock wave over and above normal atmospheric pressure okay so basically it just means whatever pressure. it should normally be Plus There's more extra. So the overpressure is the extra. It's a sexy military term. They yeah. don't, they like doing that. Yeah. And a very catchy tune by Queen and David Bowie. Overpressure. Loss of eardrums can occur, as I noted, but it, that's of course not a life-threatening injury. The danger Sucks, from though. the real danger from overpressure comes from the collapse of the building that you're standing in that can't handle it, uh, and the violent implosion of windows and walls creating a hail of deadly glass. Oh, missiles. yes, the hail of deadly glass. You know what we need to do here? We need to start mm-hmm. making our buildings out of people, because they're resistant to this sort I of thing. I agree with that. Flesh buildings has always been a dream of mine. <laughs> Soylent construction. <laughs> Go well with the flesh lamps. Fleshlights? <laughs> Fleshlight. And here's probably my most favorite caustic note. The blast also magnifies thermal radiation burn injuries by tearing away severely burned skin. Right. This creates raw open wounds that readily become infected. 
But this happens almost at the same time, though, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, you get, well, you get burned very slightly before the blast wave hits right. you, depending on so you get how burned, and then the shock wave And the shock wave comes and tears all that away. freshly burned skin away, and then all so that... So at least you're like, oh, man, I'm so glad that bur- those burns are gone. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, I'm covered by debris and flying shards of molten hot like glass. This. Oh, I'm burning! Oh, I'm not burning anymore. <laughs> <laughs> or, I just don't have maybe skin. It was more like, maybe it's more like, I'm burnt a little, but not so bad. And then, oh, my skin is gone. I needed that. So I've got some uh, overpressure lists here. At 1 PSI, windows uh, window glass will shatter. At 3 PSI, residential structures collapse. At 5 PSI, most buildings collapse. This is why they call the 5 PSI the, the fatal zone, even though 5 PSI humans can handle. Uh, injuries, though, are universal. Fatalities are widespread uh, because of, again, everything collapsing around right. you. Mm-hmm. 10 PSI of overpressure, reinforced concrete buildings are severely damaged or demolished. Most people are killed. And at 20 PSI, heavily built concrete buildings are severely damaged or demolished. Fatalities approach 100%. I've got some in the history, a few little notes here. The one that I really liked is Operation Plowshare, Mm -hmm. which is uh, also called Project Plowshare. I found both names. So I don't know which one is. Well, it's a project and it's an operation. I guess so. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was the overall. They were going to call it Operation Project Plowshare. (laughs) Well, the project part is coming up with the idea and the operation is implementing it. it. Maybe. Sure. Mm hmm. It was the overall United States term for the development of techniques to use nuclear explosives for peaceful construction purposes. Sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. So hammering swords and like clearing landfills and stuff like that. Uh, Yeah. Basically Mm -hmm. uh, creating new harbors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> fireworks displays. <laughs> you know those Americans and their fireworks. Uh-huh. The phrase was coined in 1961, taken from Isaiah 2, uh, verses 3 to 5. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Gee, the Bible is true. Mm. <laughs> this reminds me of uh, the episode of The Simpsons where uh, Homer gets a gun and starts using it as a tool around the house, to, like turn <laughs> yeah. out lights That's and stuff right. like like that. Exactly. And hammering nails and whatnot. Yes. Uh, so this is what uh, this was the U.S. portion of what's called a peaceful nuclear explosion, or PNE. <laughs> okay. Oh, as opposed to the Pacific National Exhibition, That's which right. just wrapped up here in Vancouver. Proposed uses for nuclear explosives under Project Plowshare included widening the Panama Canal. Sure. Constructing mm-hmm. a new sea level waterway through Nicaragua named the Panatomic Canal. <laughs> ah, <laughs> I like uh-huh. it. I like that a lot. Cutting paths through mountainous areas for highways. So would you just do one bomb that made one giant crater? Would you do like a series of small bombs to get like a bead effect of small craters? As a matter of fact, yeah. One of the plans that they had, uh, I believe it was a Russian plan. I can't find the picture I consult the designer. Right. Yeah. I might ask you to have a look. Okay. Give me your thoughts. One of the Russian plans involved multiple uh, explosives. Each one basically creating a huge crater to form a new harbor that kind of went in and then hooked to the right. left, like almost like a dogleg uh, harbor, like a, like uh-huh. a dogleg on a, on a uh, golf course. Right. But wouldn't radiation bees possibly as a bad side effect of this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that I don't know. I mean, they didn't... Re- Maybe they- this whole project was sponsored by the... Um, hazmat suit industry oh yes or the <laughs> big hazmat <laughs> yeah that's right big hazmat project carry or, or the bottled water industry for the harbor right then you can't drink the natural water yeah mm-hmm. ah. 
Project Carryall, proposed in 1963 by the Atomic Energy Commission in the California Division of Highways, would have used 22 nuclear explosions to excavate a massive road cut through the Bristol Mountains in the Mojave Desert oh. to accommodate construction of Interstate 40 and a new rail line. Yeah. I but guess if you got we, we got this mountain not doing anything, it's in the kind of in the way. We got all these bombs <laughs> now. But here's the thing: I mean, what would it take you to steal your nerve and drive down Interstate 40 like as soon as that road opened? You're like, <laughs> let me get this straight. They cut this road in through the mountain pass with nuclear bombs. Yeah, I mean, this is in the like 60s or later, so we're aware of like the, the yeah. dangers of fallout radiation and whatnot. Yeah, so it's like. Who wants to be the first to drive down that road? So here's, Big hazmat. Here's my guess, and I, I, I couldn't find the details on this, but my guess is that the uh, bombs would have been exploded underneath where the tunnel would be, mm-hmm. right? So then, katung, destroy stuff, and then all the earth would collapse on it, forming a tunnel above where the bomb was set off, or something along, some crazy engineering thing uh-huh. like that. So the nuclear stuff is way buried beneath you, and then I'm guessing they would put like a nice- Well, that works out fine until the radiation hits a worm, and then it grows to a gigantic Godzilla monster and comes out and I starts destroying the city. we've got a movie script. No, we got tremors. Oh, yeah. Now, the U.S. didn't really pull any of this off. What? The Soviet, they, oh. they didn't really. They kept planning it, and of course, being a free and democratic society that you know gave a crap about its populace, they didn't bother doing it. The Soviet Union actually had two programs. They had the. They don't em- value human life like Americans <laughs> do. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> they had the employment of nuclear explosive technologies in the interests of national economy, also referred to as Program Six, and the peaceful nuclear explosions for the national economy, also referred to as Program Seven. <laughs> okay, all right. So they're the creative. least the least said about programs one through five, the better. Yeah. I bet you the acronyms uh, for those were much better in Russian. Yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah. They did a lot of tests for these. Okay. They really wanted to find the practical uses for nuclear weapons. In Program 6, they did Digging 124 up. tests with 135 devices. Uh-huh. Primary objectives were water reservoir development, dam yeah. and canal construction, <laughs> and creation of underground cavities for toxic waste storage. That oh, one well, makes sense. Because, you, know, you know, if you're going to put create. toxic waste into a radioactive <laughs> hole, who cares? Yeah, yeah. It's well, just the water, toxic upon toxic. The no. water reservoir and toxic waste dump could go hand <laughs> in hand. Same, yeah. Yeah. I love digging wells we with have nuclear bombs. We have accomplished two goals, leader. <laughs> <laughs> now, those were all tests. So they didn't actually create a water reservoir. They said, let's explode one and see how it would be good for being used as yeah, a water right. reservoir. Pour some water into it. Right. And, and then. then We'll, we'll have Sergey go over and take a drink. And I'm guessing they went, <laughs> well, it made the reservoir. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, however, Program 7 conducted 115 nuclear explosions between 1965 and 1989. Wow, that's a big program. Ooh. They were similar to the Americans' efforts, who also did a bunch of tests, except that six of the shots were considered an applied rather than test nature because they were used to put out runaway gas well fires and a methane blowout. Oh. Oh, fight fire with atomic That's fire. That's right. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, when the uh, BP Gulf spill was going on, there was talk amongst the media, maybe we're going to have to pull out the nuclear option to put this thing out, to which the American government went, are you fucking kidding me? No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're not, we're, we don't want to blow up a nuclear device in the uh, Gulf of Mexico? So compared to the... That would just you know, disintegrate the oil rather than spread it out. <laughs> Compared to the 239 tests that the Russians did, the Americans only detonated 27 tests in Project Plowshares. Mr. President, we must not allow a plowshare gap. 
I'm sure that's exactly what was going on. <laughs> the Soviets agreed to stop their PNE program at the end of 1988 as a result of then-President Mikhail Gorbachev's disarmament initiative. Several PNE applications, such as deep seismic sounding and oil stimu- stimulation, were explored mm. in depth and appeared to have a positive cost benefit at minimal public risk. Wow, mm. oil stimulation. <laughs> so I guess, you know, as long as you, if you know the oil's there and the only way you can get to it is by setting off a nuke somewhere to weaken things, the nuke will be far enough away and the radiation will be buried and it'll mm. be okay. No. But of course, we're very worried about it. Now, if only we could convince Vancouver to stop its peony. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think we could live without the mini donuts. Oh, give me your attention. There's been a new invention. It isn't any larger than an adding machine. It's only fair to mention, though it's a new invention. It's one that you have heard about, but few have ever seen. It doesn't do division, and it doesn't multiply. It doesn't want to be a bird, it doesn't try to fly. It came about because they made a big atomic bomb. The new invention's clicking, and because of all its ticking, I know where the idea came from. I tick, tick, tick. Why do I tick? What amazing trick Makes me tick, tick, tick I tick, tick, tick An electric tick When I feel a realistic tick You're such an attractive hick Give me a radioactive kick It's distractive the way you stick But love, love makes me tick I tick, tick, tick And my heart beats quick How can anything go wrong When I'm listening to that Geiger counter Like the merchant and the Indian chief, tick ticks like the poor, like the rich man, tick tick ticks. Digging a ditch man, the butter and egg man, the poor wooden leg man, the beggar and thief. All found out what it's all about. When it's love, you can't be wrong. You better listen to that Geiger counter song and tick tick all day long. Tick 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 tick. The monsters of Lovecraft are coming. Deep ones. Shoggoths. Even Great Cthulhu. The end is nigh. Who do you want saving the world? How about the greatest inventor who ever lived? Nikola Tesla, the inventor of the 20th century, battles the most horrifying creatures of nightmare in Tesla vs. Cthulhu. A film from Allied Alchemy Studios. Join our Kickstarter and pick your team at teslaversuscthulhu.com Public service announcement! <laughs> Alert today, alive tomorrow. Plan now with your family for civil defense emergency action. Someday it may save your lives.
Join, work, and share together with others this knowledge of self-help. Civil Defense, an American tradition. What do you do in a radiation emergency? How do you protect yourself? A nuclear bomb goes off, and you're worried about radiation. Duck well, and cover. Yeah, in, that, in, our, in the fantastic Iron Giant movie, which I've spoken about several times, because I fucking love that movie, mm. uh, there's that whole you know little movie they have at the very beginning, Duck and Cover. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, an actual real movie. But let's say an explosion occurs, and you assume there's going to be a rea- radioactive material involved. Okay. Right. All right. And you survived. You're, you're far enough away that yeah. you haven't been atomized or- yeah. incinerated. or. So let's yeah. talk about how radiation is not your friend. Okay. So what you want to do, mm-hmm. do not walk towards the mushroom cloud. Uh, 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 okay. That seems like a- But pretty- dude, like- <laughs> Walk, don't run. It's your only- No, run, don't walk. The, when else are you going to have a chance I know. to see one up close? Yeah. yeah. And hey, <laughs> mushrooms. I like mushrooms. Yeah, a cloud of mushrooms mm-hmm. sometimes goes well on a on a giant mountain of mashed potatoes. It's going to be the third in the spicy air cloudy with a chance of meatballs series. <laughs> the mushroom cloud. Yeah. Oh yeah. Have they not like already? It. Please, they must have done. I that haven't joke. seen the second one yet. TM. Walk inside a building with closed doors and windows as quickly as possible and listen for information from emergency responders and authorities. On your broken Uh, radio. uh Yeah, on your... (laughs) On your fried radio. On your fried radio. Cover your mouth and nose with a tissue, filter, clothing, or damp cloth to avoid inhaling or ingesting radioactive material. Is a tissue really going to be enough here? Well, this is because of the particles that you have to get inside your body that can be dangerous. Is Which that ones right, are those? Dr. Rob? Those are the uh, anything that any dust in the air after the nuclear explosion. But we got alpha, presumably. beta, gamma, but, and but there's some particles that can't get through your skin. But if they get in through your mouth or right. nose, right? Is that the alpha? Alphas and betas are more dangerous when ingested. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Remove contaminated clothing and place them in a sealed plastic bag. Wait, alphas and betas, like as in you know sororities and fraternities. So yes, don't exactly ingest. Like that. Do uh, not ingest an alpha or a beta or or a gamma, for that matter, <laughs> if, you, if you can avoid it. Yeah. Remove contaminated clothing and place them in a sealed plastic bag. The clothing could be used later to estimate a person's exposure, so that might be useful okay. information. Yeah. Oh, so like you just Geiger counter that shit. Like, oh, that's the uh, that's the amount of juice I got. Yep, you're Could, screwed. Can you Geiger counter a piece of clothing, or does Geiger counter just uh, uh, like the air? You could measure the radioactivity coming from clothing if there's radioactive dust. Okay. So now, uh, if you put it in a plastic bag, no other additional material can punch through a plastic bag. Like none of that uh, radioactive stuff can get in there, like uh, UV rays or whatever. I think the plastic bag is mostly to just make sure it doesn't... It contains the dust. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, got it. contains the contamination. And it will also stop alpha particles and some uh, lower energy betas. Gently wash skin to remove any possible contamination. Don't scrub it like you would see on Gattaca. Yeah. Uh-huh. No the, scrubbing. No scrubbing. Well, because you've probably badly burned your skin. Uh-huh. And yeah. if you scrub too hard, it'll all come off. That can, yeah. that can happen, too. Well, and you'll internalize radioactive material through... Yeah. Through the scrubbed. Through irritation. Mm-hmm. Well, your through broken skin. Mm-hmm. Making sure that no radioactive material enters the mouth or is transferred to areas of the face where it could easily be moved to the mouth. So just spit constantly. Just keep everything keep out of spitting. your mouth. Yeah. Keep everything out of your mouth? Yeah. Everything? Yeah. After a nuke, yeah. Oh. <laughs> there's Kevin. There's, there's mm. that last piece of pizza. There's dust and like a, a mushroom cloud in the dif- in the distance, and Kevin's like, "Eh, <laughs> forbidden pizza." Hey, if it was Uncle Fatty's, I'd risk it. 
If you are advised to take shelter, close all doors and windows, turn off ventilation, air conditioners, and forced air heating units that bring in fresh air from the outside because that air is not fresh. No. <laughs> or maybe it's a little too fresh. Oh, but how stuffy is it going to get inside oh, your home? Oh, it's going to get stuffy. Oh. Only use units to recirculate air that is already in the building. Damn you, nuclear weapons making my building stuffy. <laughs> I know, right? I hate a stuffy room. Ugh, what if you're sharing it with people, too? Oh, oh my God. God, you might actually start sweating. Oh, terrible. Close fireplace dampers. Okay. Move to an inner room. Who has an inner room? Like, you have to have, like, an actual house. I've got an apartment. Mm. There is no inner room. What's my inner room? Uh, hide inside the refrigerator. Yeah, there you go. That's, That's true. I don't in have... your mind. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Find your ice cave. <laughs> I guess. No, hold on. I'm in, I'm in an apartment building. I guess I could just go into the hallway. That would be like the inner room. Oh, right? yeah, I guess. Like, you know, because uh, there's no like windows in the hallway or whatever. Yeah, but You're, then like, you probably can't turn off ventilation, air conditioners, and forced air heating units in the hallway. Uh, but you can mill like... with the zombies. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Questions such as when it's safe to leave a building or return home, what is safe to drink and when, along with how children will be cared for, who cares about that, (laughs) if they are separated from their parents, will be answered by authorities who will be making decisions on a case-by-case basis, depending on the information available at the time. This comes from the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, who I'm sure will be very uh, efficacious (laughs) and uh, be able to get this information to you. They'll have a worker on every corner. Yeah. Well, uh, you know what, I mean... uh, if, again, Dr. Strangelove has taught me anything, on a case-by-case basis, it's a bunch of dudes in a bunker yeah. and a bunch of supermodels. That's who they decide <laughs> to save for the repopulation. And a you know, 10 to 1 ratio would be about right. I found something on uh, NPR. Five men agree to stand directly under an exploding nuclear bomb. Did they do it for a podcast? I'd do it for a podcast. What? Whoa, you, you, you will, I will record the posthumous Joe podcast after you've done that. On July 19th, 1957, five Air Force officers and one photographer stood together on a patch of ground about 65 miles northwest of Las Vegas. Directly overhead, two F-89 jets roar into view and one of them shoots off a nuclear missile carrying an atomic warhead. 18,500 feet above them, the missile is detonated and blows up, uh, which means these men intentionally stood directly underneath an exploding two-kiloton nuclear bomb. One of them, at the key moment, looks up. He's wearing sunglasses. Okay. Why did they do this? Uh, were they were they all terminally ill? Was this Dr. Kevorkian-esque? No. no. There's a great YouTube video of this. Yeah, you can watch the YouTube video. They are as excited as schoolgirls. They are giddy. Really? Yeah. Giddy. Yeah. In 1957. <laughs> Mm. We already well, we'd seen the effects of Hiroshima. We knew what kind of like you know radio radiation could do to people. Like, I don't. Okay, let's watch it. This footage was shot by the U.S. Air Force to demonstrate the relative safety of a low-grade nuclear exchange in the atmosphere. Two colonels, two majors, and a fifth officer agreed to stand right below the blast. Only the cameraman George Yoshitaki didn't volunteer. Uh. <laughs> was they make him do it? Yep. Well, was he a Japanese prisoner of war? Maybe. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't find an American who'll take this f- photograph. So uh, uh, they volunteered, but I, I don't really understand the motivation. It was well, a safety demonstration. The, no, yeah. I, know, I know what the reason to shoot the movie was, 
But why did these five guys want to stand directly underneath this thing? The country was just beginning to worry about nuclear fallout, and the Air Force wanted to reassure people that it was okay to use atomic weapons to counter similar weapons being developed in Russia. Right, yes. So now, I again, I understand why the government wanted to shoot this video, but why did the guys want to stand underneath a nuclear device? Because they're in the military and they're crazy? They probably thought it would be just a rad trip. It would be rad, all right. <laughs> Well, so that's, and they're all uh, grinning and shaking hands after. Yeah, they are very pleased with themselves. Mm. Colonel <laughs> Sidney C. Bruce died in 2005 at the age of 86. Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Frank Ball died in 2003 at the age of 83. Major John Hughes. Wait, the pretty in pink guy? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Died in 1990 at age 71. Major Norman Bodinger. This nuclear bomb has changed my world outlook. I'm going to go make good teen comedies. Yeah, there you go. May still be alive. Don Luttrell uh, died 1987, age 63. And George Yoshitaki, still alive. And I'm, angry. I guess, I guess it didn't substantially <laughs> well, shorten their lives. 18,500 feet, 5.6 kilometers. Uh-huh. So, and again, there's nothing... Uh, there's no debris from that high up in the air mm. coming down on you, right? So there's a shockwave 5.6 kilometers away, and there's the radiation 5.6 kilometers away. And I guess somebody did the math yeah. and said, it's fine. They'll be okay. And it's only two kilotons. What was that? Barely, it was a baby a, bomb. barely a firecracker. So it was, yeah, so it was a tenth of Hiroshima. Mm. Now, it also goes on to say that lots of people associated with Nevada test site operations got cancer over the years. Some $150 million has been paid out in compensation to over 2,000 on-site participants of nuclear testing under the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. I'm good. There's one of those. Well, who knew? Uh, the people at this particular uh, demonstration... Mm-hmm. volunteered to be there with exception of uh, the cameraman and were given some pre-film training. This was not the case for a little community downwind from the Nevada test site, a place called St. George, Utah. The folks in St. George were repeatedly hit by uninvited fallout. In 1953, one test codenamed Harry actually deposited quite a lot of fallout on St. George to the point where residents were forced to stay inside for many hours and prohibited from washing their cars until they became less radioactive. Presumably uh, prohibited from driving uh, their cars as well. How long would that take? I suppose it would depend on what is actually being exploded. in the fallout. Yeah. You like can have f- all sorts of different uh, fission products. I'm us- I imagine it would be probably like a few weeks. Uh, at the very least. I mean, uh, some of that, or some of it will be quite long lived. So essentially, what you're waiting for is things like rain and wind to wash it away. Right. Into the- or dilute it to the point where it's no longer a significant health hazard. What do you think the chances are that they all had really green, verdant grass <laughs> on their lawns? Just, it was just scorched. You walk over it and you're like, be walking on nails because it's so strong. Like, although. Oh, oak grass. My although, lawn's full of oak grass. The community, the community uh, saved a ton of money uh, in public works because they didn't have to turn on streetlights. <laughs> Everything glows by itself. Over the years, the U.S. government has paid some $813 million to more than 16,000 downwinders, quote-unquote, to compensate them for illnesses presumably connected to the bomb testing program. Downwinders. Hmm. Yeah. I've been one of those every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, it's rough. <laughs> in the news. Uh, I want to talk about Operation Teapot. Because there was a uh, a study that came to light 
uh, not too long ago in uh, September 2012. There were a few articles that came out about it, but Operation Teapot. That's was... when they blew a teapot into orbit. <laughs> they found Russell's teapot. They, they wanted to put Russell's teapot up there. Who's Russell? To... Russell's. T- it's a thought exercise thing. Nah. Uh, no, in 1956, the Atomic Energy Commission exploded two bombs, one with an energy release equivalent of 20 kilotons of TNT mm-hmm. and the other 30 kilotons at a test site base in Nevada. Okay, these are getting big. And bottles and cans were carefully placed various distances from ground zero. So Can- bottles, bottles and cans, cans of, of tea? Of what? Uh, beer, soft drinks, Ooh. cola, lemon soda. They nuked beer. Carbonated water and ale. Okay. Uh, what? The, no mead? Uh, no, no mead. The closest containers were placed less than a quarter mile away. Uh, the outliers a couple of miles off. Some were buried. Some left in batches. Others were placed side by side. And they did this because they hate all those beverages. Uh, this is science a lot of my friends can get behind. <laughs> no, they wanted to actually see what the effect of right. nuclear or uh, radioactive energy on uh, like potable sodas and wa- bottles and cans. How much Th- more delicious will it be? Like after a nuke goes off, can yeah. you drink that beer that's okay. beside you and survive? Yeah. All right. Will you get superpowers? Well, as for the radiation, they checked them after the explosions and found that bottles closest to ground zero were indeed radioactive, but only mildly so. Exposure, uh, the author of the report says, did not carry over to the contents, by and large. The sodas and beer were well within the permissible limits for emergency use. So I think that... Emergency use. Yeah, so if if you're you're really thirsty. If you're going to die from dehydration, drink it. Yeah. All right. You you won't die from the cancer for 40 years. Right. Possibly. Possibly. You might get like a tongue and throat cancer thing. But it sounds like only... You don't need your tongue or throat, though. (laughs) <laughs> but it sounds like only the bottle was the radioactive. That's kind of what it seems like. Yeah, yeah. The, the cans were were seemed like they were fine at all. Oh, I uh, mean, like not the contents therein. That's like, yeah. like if you open, if you cracked like open the, the beer the... and poured it into a glass, right? Yeah, but without you gotta, touching the the bottle, without yeah. touching the lip of the well, bottle, you, you, you you've just... escaped your atomic fate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about taste? Or just gen- yeah. very gingerly put a straw in. Kevin, what about taste? Uh, the report says immediate taste tests. Immediate. Who got to be the taste test? I can't wait. I would hope it'd be like federal criminals or something. On, on the one hand, it could be like it, it could be a terrible like. Why would you do that? On the other hand, dude, I totally drank nuked beer. It's the corporal. It's like the corporal's mother-in-law, yeah. and she didn't know they nuked it, and I drank it. What do you? Of no, course, it's here, awesome. Here's the thing: they didn't know. Like this was the first time they'd ever done this. Like this guy could have drunk it, and it could have like burned a hole in his esophagus for all they knew. I'm sure they took a temperature reading first. <laughs> It really mm. can you, ta- drink can you it take the temperature of tests? radiation? Takes the wind out of dude bro sales. You know, <laughs> next yeah. time some guy says to you, "Hold my beer and watch this," uh, uh, uh. Operation <laughs> Teapot, buddy. <laughs> Flick the lights off really quick and see if the bottle is glowing. Yeah, there you go. Immediate taste tests indicated that the beverages, both beer and soft drinks, were still of commercial quality, although there was evidence of a slight flavor change in some of the products exposed at only twelve hundred and seventy feet from ground zero. And most blasted beers were, and I quote, definitely off. Okay. Oh, what if you liked it? Oh, what if you like it more than regular beer? Nobody skunk, like skunk skunky skunk beer. beer. Yeah. <laughs> That'll become the most expensive beer in history. Oh, what, if, what if you don't like Mountain Dew, but you do like radioactive Mountain Dew? <laughs> then you should drink it. I, I just had a mental picture of the label for atomic skunk beer, right? You have a skunk, like the stinky tail waves, but it'd have like, you know, the big, you know, nuclear hazard symbol over the tail. Well, it would have to have a caustic soda bottle, bottle cap on it. Oh, that there is no doubt. 
Uh, the first tasters then passed samples to selected laboratories for further testing, and this time the contents were rated acceptable. Hmm. So, should you ever find yourself near an atomic blast and run short of potable water, you can chug a Coke or a beer, but don't expect it to taste so great. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I just, I want to know, I want to be in the room when they're like, when you've got all the people from the uh, Atomic Energy Commission sitting around going, all right, what can we do next to justify our funding? No, oh, I can really taste the Becquerels. What should we blow up now in 1956? Uh, what, what's next on our list? Beck's Becquerels. Can you <laughs> yeah, play? there you go. I want them to test board games to see if I can play board games after a nuke. Mm. Are they safe? Can I play Settlers of Catan <laughs> while I'm trying to settle a new city yeah, in this still radioactive wasteland? Just, just don't touch the box. Oh, good. And don't eat the pieces. <laughs> the robber becomes a mutant. Uh, but, but precisely. The actual rules of the game change once uh, a <laughs> nuclear wave goes over you. I guess that, that's probably true because the rules of the game all become, who cares? We're all going to die. I've got glowing wood for two-headed sheep. This was uh, 2013. North Korea appears to have doubled the size of the area used to enrich uranium at its Yongbyon reactor complex in recent months, a proliferation monitoring group reported, raising new concerns that the country could increase production of weapons-grade fuel, even as it says that it wants to relax tensions with South Korea and the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I don't trust North Korea one bit. Yeah. Thank God Dennis Rodman has risen as our uh, ambassador in these troubled times. (laughs) I mean, the recent news out of North Korea is that his ex-girlfriend was in a porno, so he had her executed by firing squad. Mm-hmm. Well, I do, I do know that Dennis Rodman did star in a movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And if you can handle that ego, you can probably handle the ego of a violent dictator as well. Probably. So he might be the perfect ambassador. Is he our last best hope? I hope not. <laughs> Pop culture? Pop culture. So I want to start it off with, I, I rewatched The Atomic Cafe. Mm-hmm. It's a documentary that's made up. Wait, it's about instant coffee, obviously. The Atomic, Atomic Cafe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a documentary from 1982 that covers the beginnings of the era of nuclear warfare. And it's made entirely from archival film from the 40s up to uh, 60s. And it's a really interesting way of presenting this information. There's no commentary. There's no voiceover. There's no, and then the nuclear bomb killed this many people. It's, they just show propaganda and archival film, newsreel clips, uh, television news footage, some government-produced propaganda films. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty crazy to watch and just to see the attitude. Like, and I, we grew up, I mean, 82, we were... Years old, and um, <laughs> and so this is stuff that was hitting us, and I kind of remember it, but I I never worried. I don't know. You were saying that you freaked out, but oh yeah, well I mean uh, when, I, when we when we were growing up in Lar, which was a Canadian Forces base in Germany, um, it was always on twenty minute alert, meaning oh, you wow. were never more than twenty minutes from a bunker, World War Three, <laughs> and I can remember in grade three taking a book out of the library on atomic bombs and at seven years old thinking oh i get it okay this is all about atomic war so this is how i'm going to die Mm. yeah Yeah. i had it all figured out right i'm going to die in an (laughs) atomic bomb and it was pretty freaky and i can remember the trucks would come through the streets uh, because they would always do practice drills right and so you'd hear the air raid sirens coming from the trucks 
Yeah, I'm starting and, to I'm starting to understand where this fear of yours came from because in your situation, your surroundings, it didn't seem like an irrational fear because they're constantly telling you, "Listen, this could happen at any minute, so be prepared for it." And lo and behold, as a child, you kind of adopted the thought that, you know, maybe this could might happen. It's yeah. all he's ever known. Yep, maybe dad's going to war tomorrow. Like if mm. If I would in Campbell River, British Columbia, if every day that somebody come up to me and said, hey, nuclear war is imminent, look out, I might have started to believe that nuclear yeah. war was imminent. What if they came to you and said, it's trouble at the mill? Oh, they, they do that all the time. Okay, then. Yeah. So you live in a constant You could smell the trouble state. at the mill. That's right. <laughs> Kevin, yeah. Kevin knew that he was going to die by being tied down to a log as it went towards a buzzsaw. <laughs> yeah. I just knew it. Well, and, somebody monologued. And so lots of times in the middle of the night, my dad would get up and leave. He'd hear you know, the air raid sirens, and, and, and you just sit there wondering, oh, I wonder if the war started. Yeah. Is this real or is this a yep. practice? And he had, his, wow. he had his rucksack packed. It was by the door. Uh, constantly ready to go and that was just how we lived for five years we talked about dr strange love in our cold war episode quite a bit so uh we're going to kind of skip it for this one but i don't want to not mention it a fantastic film there's See a guy it. who rides a nuclear weapon Yeehaw! i actually have Woo! a new i have a, I have new dr strange love trivia budget of the film was two million dollars mm-hmm. and one million of it was given to peter sellers <laughs> Now only one million, only huh? one of the two million, <laughs> which uh, evidently irked uh, Stanley Kubrick a lot because he yeah. would have rather had more money to spend on the film. Yeah, uh, but in Peter Sellers' defense, he took on three roles. He, he played the British officer dealing with the psychopathic American officer, precious bodily fluids. <laughs> he di- he plays, uh, of course, Doctor Strangelove himself, mm-hmm. and he plays the president. Right, so when. Stanley Kubrick, in an interview, was asked what he thought about Peter Sellers getting such a big share of the budget. He said, oh, well, it's not so bad. I got three actors for the price of six. (laughs) (laughs) So he kind of had a chip on his shoulder about Peter Sellers scooping most of his budget. Does anybody remember when Indiana Jones got nuked? (sighs) Yeah. In the... Hold on a sec, Joe. This movie never happened. Yeah, let's... I, I wish someday that they make a fourth Indiana Jones movie. That would be great. You know, it's where funny. he wakes up from the third movie and it shakes it off like a dream. <laughs> that that well, movie maybe, was a burner for me. Maybe in the in the fourth movie that they make, there'll be uh, you know some uh, crazy Russians and uh, some Aztec alien mummies and stuff like that. I was no, thinking. No, no. I was thinking we don't want a plot like that. Oh no! The fourth movie should be something good. That sounds awful. Oh, I he see. should he should join the Avengers as the new Hulk. It belongs in a museum! (laughs) (laughs) The one good thing that came out of it was I got to see a lot of science about exactly why going inside a refrigerator, even a lead-lined one, would not save you from a nuclear blast. Uh, Uh, I've got a great one here from overthinkingit.com, which is is a scientific peer review of the fridge nuking scene. Mm -hmm. It's a very long, very involved post which I'm not going to repeat the entire thing for. I will put a link up to it at causticsortofpodcast.com. Um, but he calculates uh, from a table uh, derived from Dolan's Capabilities of Nuclear Weapons Part 1 that he can estimate that Indy must have been initially placed far less than 0.6 kilometers or 660 yards from the detonation of a 10 to 44 kiloton atomic weapon. He figured that out from how far the, the fridge flew and how much mm-hmm. force would have to be put onto it. Again, he goes through a lot of detail. Go read it. But I'm just going to list off all the ways that Indy would be dead 
because of this, and you can go to the post to find out exactly why. Okay. Okay. There are the ways mechanical. He would be crushed under the shock wave. He would be killed by lethal acceleration. He would be killed by whiplash, and he would be crushed on re-entry when the refrigerator landed. Yes. Right, because you're not in a padded refrigerator. You're. Well, he's just bracing himself really well. <laughs> Either that or just going limp. Really he's got a natty hat. That's, that's why we don't bother with airbags or, or uh, seatbelts in cars. People can just brace themselves. Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. Although, if I learned anything from our falling episode, you could get lucky. Yes. Because people have it's, fallen out of airplanes and survived. Well, I think the actual moment of inertia on this would be greater than terminal velocity. All right. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. He's got the details. Uh, there are the ways thermal. You would be scorched by molten lead because even if it was a, a lead-lined refrigerator, that lead would melt mm-hmm. because of the heat. Uh, you would be scorched by the incendiary air. He's close enough that the air would just bake him. Uh, baked Indiana because the fridge itself would become an oven. Right. And it would it would heat up, but then it would not be able to cool off as quickly because it's fairly well insulated. Yeah. There's the ways aerodynamic. Uh, suffocation. Uh, conventional. He's just in a sealed fridge. Yeah. He can't breathe in there very long. But he's or, holding the door closed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Or the less the conventional, nukes burn up all the oxygen. Right. Ah. Of course. Then there's the there and back again. As the atomic fireball develops and consumes its massive influx of oxygen, it generates a kind of reverse blast wind several seconds after its initial outward shockwave. Depending on the intensity of the ensuing firestorm and the distance he's landed away from ground zero, Indy may very well be sucked back into the explosion. Oh, no! (laughs) Injury to injury as opposed to insult. Uh, Then there are the ways radioactive, death by x-rays, etc., Followed by shielding, schmielding is what he says. <laughs> Basically, shielding, schmielding, that fridge is not going to block uh-huh. these things that are going to no, kill you. I think the point is, and this scene is just but the cherry on the shit Sunday that yeah. this movie is. Yeah. If you have not yet seen Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, avoid it at all costs. I yeah. think I might go see it again. It's awful. It was a, I, it was a burner for me. I came out of it going, well, I, like I, I wanted to say good things about it. Like I didn't hate it immediately, even though I hated that scene. Yeah. But I was like, well, you know, flaws, but Indiana Jones. And then just a week later, I was like, yeah, yeah. what was I thinking? The slow burn, just, the yeah. simmer. You, uh, you tried to become well, an apologist, yeah, right? Yeah, I tried. I felt the same way. I felt the same way. Yeah, tried and failed. Yeah. And stay away from Crystal Skull Vodka while you're at it. Yeah, wickedly overpriced. But those bottles are cool. They are pretty cool. I mean, let's face it. If Dan Crystal Aykroyd, Skulls are inherently cool. Yeah. If Dan Aykroyd has taught me anything, yummy. Now, Torrin, you've seen War Games. Has it been recently? I didn't watch it recently. Uh, in the past few years, I guess. Would you like to play a game? Yeah. I would like to play a God, game. that movie's 30 now, isn't it? Yes, it mm-hmm. is. 1983 film starring Matthew Broderick as a young hacker who unwittingly accesses Whopper, a United States military supercomputer programmed to predict possible outcomes of nuclear war. I can never get past the term Whopper because that always made me think of the uh, chocolate confectionery Whoppers. Uh, <laughs> oh, it makes me I always think... thought of the burger. Yeah, yeah. the burger. I, I saw it again like, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And at that time I thought, oh, this movie holds up but huh. i haven't seen it since then oh it's a good movie i yeah. think it's pro- I, I remember the 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 hacking stuff to be fairly good i remember he basically sets up what's called a war dialer which is mm. you know he's got his old-fashioned modem if i recall he actually the has to put the handset, handset on the modem yeah. Yeah. 
but he literally does the thing where you have to make it just randomly dial numbers like yeah. or not even randomly it goes through a list of numbers right yeah. and adds one and just keeps trying and if somebody answers it hangs up but if it gets a it's like oh that's a computer tries to connect sees what's going on yeah right back in an era when there were not a whole heck of a lot of computers online right so. well there there's no basically no public online mm-hmm. there's bulletin board systems and there's dial up into some computer that's got a modem somewhere and strategic nuclear computers and yeah yeah that was kind of odd dial in from home <laughs> they kind of fixed that with a pretty easy security of even if you they wanted people to be able to dial in from home they would make it so you would dial up log in and then it would phone you back at only the pre-approved phone number uh-huh. so you'd have to also hack the phone system in order to be able to hack that system Right. Uh, but, but you can still change the grades on your computer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your school computer. Uh, basically, he gets uh, he ha- hacks into this Whopper unknowingly and gets it to run a nuclear war simulation, believing it's a computer game. Unfortunately, the simulation causes a national nuclear missile scare and nearly starts World War Three. Yeah. Good times. It's a really uh, I mean, again, I remember I saw it initially and loved it. Yeah. And then I saw it again years later and thought that it held up over time, that it yeah. wasn't. I mean, it's it's dated. Like you got the green monitors and the whole. Right, but you know, for, would you like to play a game bracket Y slash N? You know, the classic. for a relatively for a 1983 era technology, yeah. it's fairly accurate. It's mm-hmm. it's got a few. Let's make this quicker for the purposes of a movie. Mm-hmm. But those are totally acceptable. Yeah, it's got a scientist flying around a remote controlled pterodactyl. What's not to love about that? <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> It made me appreciate Missile Command even more. (laughs) John Woo's second Hollywood feature after our previously reviewed Van Damme vehicle Hard Target was Broken Arrow, starring another scenery-chewing John Travolta. I like Broken Arrow. Do you? It is a guilty pleasure. I admit it. Uh, I'm not supposed to like it, but I do. I can accept it as guilty pleasure. What's the new connection? Uh, Well, uh, John Travolta is... he's hijacked a nuclear missile from because uh, the broken arrow is a you know uh um, it means a rogue nuclear weapon that's right and they he is a co-pilot of a of a nuclear delivery vehicle a stealth bomber with christian slater and uh, he purposefully Ooh. crashes it and gets away with a nuclear device to make himself rich and then christian slater tries to stop it that's is right it, he's the only guy who wants out there. to he's an extortion he wants to get a ransom for the weapon or? yes exactly he puts it on a train and starts like sending it towards st louis i think and it's, he's gonna blow the city up if they don't give him like hundreds of millions of dollars yeah it's a john woo movie it doesn't make any sense yeah okay and they're on the, the best line in the movie by far is they're on the train and christian slater has like stymied travolta because travolta's plan was to like send the thing to st louis and then get out of the region so he won't blow himself up and christian slater basically foils that plan right mm-hmm. so then you know he's sort of like travolta has to make a difficult decision is he he should logically stop the train or de- uh, um uh stop the countdown on the nuclear device to keep him ticking and travolta just looks at christian slater and says ah fuck him if they can't take a joke and I don't know why, but I love that line. That's where that came from? Yeah. Broken Arrow. Broken Arrow. Wow. Well, she's referencing Bette Midler was fuck them if they can't take a joke. I, I have think no initially. Idea. I think that was her It's the first time I ever joke. heard it. And I loved it. Hmm. It's a good line. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was a Bette Midler joke. Travolta's character sounds eerily similar to his character in Battlefield Earth, though. No, not at all. Broken Arrow is good. <laughs> Broken Arrow is good. It's fun. 
Torin, you're a big Fallout 3 fan. When you come out of the vault in Fallout 3, basically the first town... Is that just a super armored closet? Vault is basically like a bunker. Okay. That, uh, like a bunker city. It's a, it's right? a bomb shelter. Yeah. Community. Community. Closet-esque? Yes. Okay. So when Torn comes out of the closet... When I come out of the closet, mm-hmm. the first place I go is to the town of Megaton. Yeah. Okay. So named because it uh, is basically formed around this crater in which sits an unexploded nuclear device. Yep. A giant bomb. It looks like a big fat boy. Yeah. Right. And there's a quest where some guy, and I've never, I've only ever played this quest one way, where you kill the guy and oh, you yeah. don't detonate the bomb like he wants you to do. Oh, have you seen the video of the bomb being detonated? I haven't, but now now that I'm talking about it, I kind of want to go and start it over again and see what would happen if I detonated this bomb. Here comes mm-hmm. your spoiler. All right. Here we go. So uh, what happens is you set up the detonating device for it, and then you go visit the rich guy at his big tower, which has a beautiful view of Megaton. Yeah. So there's the detonator, and you get to press the button. Okay. This is a little bleak. Yeah, and this is a town where everybody basically helped you out. And you're just like, no, I'm a bad guy. I like how you get the camera shutter. And, now, you, and you lose karma. You, yeah. Now that, my friend, is beautiful. What a grand display of fireworks. I, I wish there was wish another there nuke we could detonate. You don't see that very often. That's right. Mr. Burke works for the rich guy. That's right. So uh, in the way that I play it, mm-hmm. I, I don't detonate it, and that's my home base because they give you a, yeah. a home yeah in the, much like in skyrim where you can buy houses right and basically they give you a place to keep all the massive stuff that you couldn't possibly carry in your character throughout yeah. the mm-hmm. game um so i guess in this version if you blow it up you get a, you a get place a, at the hotel you get a place at 10 penny tower right yeah because of course megaton is nuked civil defense is common sense this is boris karloff no one can guarantee the survival of every home during a nuclear war but a strong civil defense can save millions of lives. Make sure that yours is one of them. Learn how to protect your home. Call civil defense today. It's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside. And when you wake up, startled to say, I hope I don't go crazy today. It's such a bad feeling, an ominous feeling, a feeling you know that we'll be back when the week is new. And we'll have more gross facts for you. And you'll have things you want to hear about. We will too. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while undergoing buckyball therapy. To comment on episodes, make donations, and for links, images, videos, and show notes, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Tweet us on Twitter at Caustic Podcast. Or email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Davy, Davy Rocket, king of the tactical nuclear recoilless gun. I'm Torn Atkinson. Don't you laugh?
But it's funny. <laughs> fucking hilarious. <laughs> do you want to do it again? Yes. 